Trumanitarian. This week's guests on Trumanitarian are Christian Balslev Olsen, the former Secretary General of Danchurch Aid, and Bishop Emeritus Carsten Nissen. They have been and are still thought leaders in the ecumenical movement, and their work and careers have influenced my thinking on humanitarian action throughout my career. They come from the same place, uh, namely the Faculty of Theology at the University of Aarhus in Denmark in the mid to late 1960s, where they both studied. That was a time of great change for the church, and you had new ideas infecting a lot of people, inspiring them to become engaged in the struggle for a more just world. The conversation does have a Danish slant to it, but please listen on and battle on through the Danish accents, and I think you will see how the commitment and passion of these two seasoned pastors is very much relevant for us as a global community today. It is the last episode in season two, and we will take a break for some weeks. Thank you all for having listened in and for all of your feedback on social media. Please continue to share your ideas for new episodes. Uh, tell us what you like, what you don't like. You can find us on Twitter at Trumanitarian, on LinkedIn, or you can send an email to info at trumanitarian.org. Enjoy the conversation. Christian Palsley Olsen and Carsten Nissen, welcome to Trumanitarian. Thank you. Thank you. Christian, you're, you're one of my favorite ex-bosses, and Dad, you are my favorite current dad. I, uh, I I just make a pledge to my listeners here. This will be the last family member I bring on to Trumanitarian, but I hope you'll find it worthwhile listening to to also what, uh, what Carsten has to say. I've invited both of you in here because you come from very similar backgrounds. You both studied theology in in the 60s and 70s in, in Aarhus, in, in Denmark, and since then became in different ways involved in international development and humanitarian work. And Christian, you, you in Denmark are best known as the former Secretary General of, of Danchurch Aid and later the, the country representative for UNICEF in Somalia. And, and that you worked more on the governance side of things as a board member in LWF and, uh, and Danchurch Aid and, and then served as a, as a pastor and later a bishop in the Danish church. I'd like to start by asking both of you, when you started out studying theology, what was it that influenced you to get involved in the whole ecumenical movement, in, in, in the development and, and humanitarian side of things? What, what drove that, Christian? I think, uh, to be very specific, it was basically the situation in South Africa, the anti-apartheid uh, work, I became, as a student, uh, involved directly in what was uh, called the church's program to combat racism. And thereby, I became involved both at home as an activist, a church activist, but also in that way, I got to know a number of uh, people, church leaders, like Desmond Tutu and others in South Africa, Namibia and South Africa. That was definitely my way into the international uh, solidarity work and from there into the more specific on humanitarian and development work. Thank you. And, and Carsten, for, for you, how, how did you get, get involved in this? Well, I started my studies in Aarhus in 1965. And the year after that, there was a big conference in Geneva 
life and work, social ethics. And uh, we had the youth rebellion in Denmark in 67. We also had, in the year to come, we also had the uh, assembly in Uppsala, World Council of Churches, the world rights, the agenda of the church was a word said again and again. Martin Luther King was killed. We had the uprising in, in the South in the United States. And also uh, we had uh, a whole new way of relating to the world. I started as a, quite a normal theological student and through the work of the, the Institute of Missiology and Ecumenical Theology, my, my eyes were opened uh, to, to the global responsibility of, of the church, the social, ethical responsibility. And uh, as part of that work, we also had a team working with a, a report made by IDOC, an institute in, in Rome, about the history of the ecumenical movement. I wrote um, a thesis during my studies on, on the integration of the World Council of Churches and the International Missionary Council, and later a, a dissertation with the same subject. So mainly through the work of Professor Johannes Orko and his wife, Anna-Marie Orko, we were a group of people who in these years experienced real a revelation, you could almost say, it, that the world became part of theology in quite another way. This formed me very much in my later work also, when I for nine years was, uh, was a, a leader of the Deacon High School in, in Aarhus. And so Christian, you chose a different path. You chose after your studies to then get more actively engaged directly in, in, in assistance. Is that, is that right? Or in, in humanitarian work? Uh, yes, it is uh, correct to some extent. I, I have to say the same personalities that Carsten has mentioned has also been the inspiration for myself. Johannes Ogor and Anne-Marie Ogor and also Viggo Mollor. When I was a student, uh, these three people had a lot of influence on my own uh, development, I could say. They were the ones to direct me, so my thesis at the, uh, when I ended at the university actually was all about uh, South Africa and other international global ethical issues. But you're right, when I uh, finalized uh, my uh, university, I first came as a secretary general for the Ecumenical Council in Denmark. That means my, my organizational, so to say, way was to join the ecumenical movement. And that has been my starting point. And I can see a line from Aarhus Ecumenical Council, Danchurch said, and uh, to the UN. I will explain that more in more details. But you're right, I, I went into the more institutional, organizational part of the ecumenical life and uh, the global solidarity work in the sense of uh, development and humanitarian activities. You're right. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to have the two of you on this show is that 
that I'm in, in my daily work uh, often confronted with an attitude towards some of the faith-based organizations that is uh, at best skeptical, I would say, right? Where it is like, what is the, what are these guys out to capture new souls? What is this, right? And, and I find that very interesting because for me, the experience has been the opposite. It has been that the, the church organizations I got involved with when I started in this space, in, in, in this line of work, were extremely purpose-driven, extremely political, extremely principled, and, and not at all out fishing for souls. But could you, could you maybe say a bit about how you, how have you related to that? We, we have, or let me put it this way. There are different shades of, of faith-based organizations. Some are clearly more, um, it's harder to distinguish between a church and a an, uh, professional NGO, whereas you have a, a, another group of agencies around the Act Alliance, for example, where I would argue that, that those are basically mainstream NGOs who just happen to be founded by on, on a Christian foundation. What, how, how do you look at, at some of the actors who may be a bit more into the missionary side as well and tend to mix these things up? Is, is that a contradiction? Is, uh, what's your thinking on that? I think it's uh, important to have a more historical point of view here. When uh, Carsten and I joined Dan Churchhead in the beginning of the 70s, it was so important to demonstrate that a church development agency was a professional one. It was actually stated by the board, we don't have a theology. We should demonstrate that we were efficient, that we were basically secular in what we were doing. By being very secular, we had access to funding from government, from other uh, governments and so on. And we distinguished ourselves very much from mission societies. In Denshaw said we have our own budget and separated for development for assisting smaller churches in Eastern Europe and so on. So the, the way that Danchard State became the big organization in the 70s in the Biafra airlifting was basically to demonstrate we are effective, efficient, and we are not mission-driven. That was uh, clearly not just because of the general secretary at that time, it was basically the way that we had access to government funding. There was a total separation of church work and development work. And you need to have in mind that we were living at a point in time where everything, everyone had in mind that religion will disappear. Modernity will take over and we will have a society, a world without religion in any house. The big uh, uh, bomb, so to say, was 79 when we had the revolution in Iran and people really realized that this religion doesn't go away. We better start thinking how to handle it. And if you now take it up today where you are trying to elaborate the attitudes, now everyone secular government bodies and so on are insisting to work with churches and religious bodies when it comes to development and humanitarian aid. That is a clear interest. Denmark being the last one, but 
the World Bank was actually the first one to directly interact with church bodies, the World Council of Churches. They did that uh, during Wolfenson. He insisted that World Bank could only maintain its credibility if they worked directly with uh, big uh, religious Christian bodies like the World Council of Churches and started a study at that point in time. Later on, all the other government uh, bodies became involved. And finally, Denmark, as the last one, has also got involved to understand we need to understand the religious dynamic in society if we have to be successful. So you see, there has been quite a development uh, during these many years that uh, we have been involved in the issue of development and religion and Christianity. May I just uh, add here that um, I quite agree. It's true that in these years, these formative years we are talking about, it was very important for us in the Dan Church Aid to demonstrate that we professionally uh, were as good, maybe even better than the purely secular organizations working within this field. But at the same time, we also had an ongoing discussion within the Dan Church Aid Board about the self-understanding of Dan Church Aid. Because the fact that you work professionally on a high level and that everything should be okay there. Also, that you of course do not use the emergency or development aid to foster religious ideas or even to evangelize. This, of course, this would be no go. On the other hand, we found it was very important that we as an organization, as a board, as staff in the Dan Church Aid, could have a discussion about why are we engaged in this? What is the aim of Dan Church Aid? And I think there also lies the, adu the, the value of, an, um, of a religious organization within uh, emergency and development aid, humanitarian aid. It is that if you want to work with people, especially people in need, you must have some kind of, 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 of uh, understanding of human dignity, of what, what is a man, what is the meaning of life? Why is it important that we have a responsibility for each other? And you can have that on the basis of a Christian faith. You can be a Muslim, you can be a Jew or Hindu, you could be an atheist. The main thing is that you do not regard this word solely as a technical function, uh, but, but that, that you keep in mind that it's the most precious item you work with when you are in this, in this game, your fellow man. And, 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 and here I think we need as church-related organizations to be very clear in our own mind why we are here. And that, that leads me to another point. This is both technical and also uh, content-related because um, the big value, I think, one of the big values of, 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 of the church-related 
humanitarian aid is that they all over the world we have a very fine basket a very fine network of local congregations of different denominations of course but we have you cannot find maybe not in north korea but in some parts of china you, you either but you cannot find a place on the earth where you, where, where that where, where there is no christian congregation nearby so there you have already before you start the work you have a network to use to work through to know the needs and also you have the local trust uh, and confidence of people when you work through the local churches and this is one of the very big advantages as i see it of the uh, of the church-related uh, emergency and humanitarian work. It's so interesting to to hear you describe this, and I, and and what I hear you saying is basically that your faith should influence you when it comes to purpose, but not procurement. Right. So that once once we we just we we think about the purpose, the principles underpinning what we do, of course our faith comes into that. But once you start running the machine and and buying blankets or whatever you may be doing. We do that just like everybody else. And and I also hear you saying that, that back in the 60s and 70s, you had to go out of your way to, sh- to make that point, that that's who we are. We are professional. What I hadn't understood and, and what I find really fascinating is then this swing back whereby some of the big international organizations, uh, the World Bank, for example, start picking up of the strength of collaborating with the churches and in engaging with societies in that way. And so, Christian, I'd, I'd be fascinated to hear you said before that there was a straight line from the from theology in Aarhus to Dan Church Aid to UNICEF and the UN. Please enlighten us. What, what is that line? At least I can see a line. I'm not sure I can uh, get everyone to understand that is a direct line. But the way I see the line is in the Dan Church Aid, in church-based development and humanitarian work, we are purpose-driven, we have a mission, and we have a basic fundamental understanding of human values. We are all created by God, no matter where you are, who you are, and where you're coming from. I see the same values when I was working within the UN. UN is basically, and I have to say, it was the privilege that I became part of a value-driven organization. We were driven by uh, a number of humanitarian and the human rights conventions and so on. Of course, there was a lot of practical issues as well, but when it comes to the bottom line, we were driven by our basic idealistic purpose And that often had an implication that there was a conflict between donors and the UN, conflict with local government and uh, the UN agencies. So in that sense, I, I feel I'm very privileged that I have in all my life been able to be part of a purpose, mission driven organization. What's the difference then between UN and working in Dan Church Aid? 
The interesting, I would say, I worked basically for 10 years with the UN in different African countries. And for my staff, local staff and internationals, there was a clear understanding we are all religious people. So a prayer in my organization in, in the UN was more something that we, of course, had to do when I was in Danchurch, said we need an argument in a secular country like, like Denmark to argue that we are religious people and we need to have a prayer. It was much more natural for my uh, 400 staff in Somalia compared to working in a secular society like the, the Danish one. And I'm, I'm not using my own experience alone. I had a very good colleague in the UN he said, I'm praying wherever I'm coming and going. Of course I have to pray, I'm a Muslim. But the only country where I cannot pray, where I feel offended, that's when I'm visiting your country in Denmark. Because people feel that I'm crossing a borderline and I should not express myself in the public in, in praying. So what I'm trying to say also within the UN it was very much driven by an understanding that uh, religion, Christianity, Muslims, and so on, is a fundamental part of what we have to understand to do development or humanitarian work. One thing I've, I sometimes thought about with, with, the, with the work of the ecumenical movement is that your heyday somehow was uh, apartheid. Um, the Palestinian cause, uh, the struggles in Central America in the 80s and and in the 90s. What is it today? You see, there has been a development in the ecumenical movement going from a grassroots movement carried by individuals with a vision. Then it became church-based from 48 when Amsterdam created the assembly in Amsterdam, the World Council of Churches. And uh, since then, it has become even more institutionalized in the community and i see through my experiences in the world council of churches i worked there one year wrote, writing my thesis and also in the lutheran world federation where i worked in in in, in the uh, uh, in the executive committee i uh, i see a development now where so to say the community movement has been much more organized and also characterized by the uh, official churches. It has made them slow. It has uh, taken away many visions. It has also meant that, for instance, when you talk about persecutions of Christians in Iraq or in the Middle East or in in China or in India in these days also, you feel a reluctance from the official church leaders. They do not want to offend by telling the truth. And therefore, I think that um, it is very needed that we ask the question to ourselves, why are we here? Are we here just to maintain our own position as churches? Or are we here because our Lord in the church has given us a commandment 
to help our fellow men, to, to love our neighbor in our daily work. I, I think that, um, of course, when, when, when we are a boomer, as we, we are boomers, you know, I mean, we, but, but you, have, you, you have chosen yourself to, to have a conversation with two old boomers. So, okay, now I, I say how I experienced it. Uh, I think that um, what happened in the 70s and the late 60s was like a, a fresh wind blowing through the churches in the world. And um, many new opportunities rose and also we were very instrumental in, in, in combating racism and we, we had also the guts to go our own ways. When I now look at, um, at Mott's development work, it has been so nice. It is so uh, driven by, uh, by organization and structures and bylaws and, 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 and what have you. Uh, and, and the vision many times is to fulfill the aims of the donors. And the beat donor is the state. And there, I think the, the church-related humanitarian aid has an, an, an obligation to stand there on its own right, not just as, as part of, uh, of the official state work, but, but because we are, we are here because we, we have a vision. We, we, we have an, a commandment to, 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 to do our work. Also, I think you should be very aware of, of what is happening in our own country, where, 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 where responsibility for people from other countries, refugees coming to our country with, with, with wounds on, on their souls and bodies are regarded as our enemies. You have a, a very big job in your own country to, 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 to change things. And also, I, I think that, 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 that you should always remember as church-related organization, of course, you have an auditor. Of course, you should, you, you should do it in the best technical way. You should, no fraud, not anything, but you res respond to a higher authority than some board in some government or some ministry. I'm sorry if, if, if it sounds too too, uh, uh, too 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 pathetic, but but but, but I think it is important that, that we remember that, and, and and this is for internal use. I mean, it's not that we should show people because theologically, I have big reservation using the word of what value do we do we give it to it because it's not a question of value. It's a question of, um, of purpose. It's a question of how do you look at your fellow man? As you were talking, Carsten, and, and you were describing the way in which the ecumenical movement has changed and become more institutionalized and less dynamic and less uh, rebellious, maybe. Uh, my, the question on my mind was, Christian, you, you describe a seamless transition into the UN system. Do, don't you see some of the same things that Carsten described happening to the ecumenical movement also happening to the UN? You're fully right. 
but before going direct to, to your questions, I would like to take you back to what we just discussed. It's quite clear that the World Council of Churches is not the same World Council of Churches that we worked with in the 60s and the 70s. Today, there is a global body called the ACT Alliance, which we didn't have at that time. And it's actually one of the biggest alliances uh, globally still. But I think it's more important to have in mind the more evangelical movement is in Africa developing and becoming the big players in development and humanitarian work. World Vision is one of the biggest, for UN, biggest partner in many African countries, doing excellent work. Tear Fund and a number of more evangelical churches are now aligning themselves and building up uh, institutions and global alliances. So maybe you don't see the World Council of Churches so much, but you will see an evangelical movement, very much driven by the Americans, growing and growing and growing. So I don't think you should take the churches out of, of, of what is happening now, but it's a different way of doing it. Secondly, yes, also in the UN or in the UN specifically, you had definitely too much bureaucracy. You had too many uh, Excel and strategies and what have you. And therefore, sometimes you are taking the energy out of, of people to what you're doing. But that doesn't take away the fact that you were actually purpose-driven in the way that you cannot have a government or a national NGO. They have to relate to the actual national agenda. Our own government now is writing up a new strategy, and the strategy is basically there to increase funding to make sure that we do not have uh, immigrants and refugees in Europe and Denmark. So the funding is driven by a purpose of national interest, which we cannot in a UN where the mandate is the Ch Child's Convention or the Human Rights Convention, definitely not. So you see there is still this purpose driven, which is so important and it's still, in my opinion, uh, the main drivers in, in the UN. Just today, UN in Denmark issued a declaration saying that Denmark's unwillingness to take the children back from the camps in Syria is against international conventions. That's definitely a very activist point of view and, and the government and many people in Denmark do not like it. But the UN has a mandate and a purpose which should not just accommodate a narrow Danish uh, interest. Well, I think one of, um, of the very important issues in these years is that uh, the humanitarian aid, it be church-related or not, but that humanitarian aid not becomes, does not become a part of foreign policy of a given nation or part of a military action of a warfaring nation somewhere in the world. We need to distinguish very closely between those two things, the humanitarian aid 
and military and uh, trade related uh, initiatives because then we lose credibility and we also lose our own self-esteem in my view when you look at the history of, 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 of colonialism, it's very interesting. For instance, in Trangabad, you see how the Danish missionaries, they were from Germany, but, but they were sent by the Danish king, that they, um, they opposed the way in which the, the, the Danish commander and the Danish army down there, uh, how they treated people, because they gave them the ability to read and, and, and to write, they, they taught them and gave them also a, a self-esteem that they were equal as human beings to any other person. And um, some of these missionaries were, were thrown into jail by the Danish military in Trangeba. So this is just a historical example. And it, it's very important today that we keep these things apart then we cannot do our work. I think we have learned the lesson the hard way. I think what has happened in Afghanistan with integrated missions or our security policy was underlined that we should have integrated missions has failed totally, totally. And if you read new security strategies, they admit openly we need to stop that kind of integration and understanding that only by integrating humanitarian and security issues we can achieve what we would like to achieve. They are even saying from some military sources saying it was a major blow that we had in mind that we could give credibility to our security missions by giving it a humanitarian alibi. This has failed totally for the humanitarian as well as for our security missions that has been there. So I think there is, sorry to say, a headache in many headquarters uh, from uh, what has happened in Afghanistan. That doesn't take away, we need to be very clear on that, but Afghanistan has definitely been a turning point. When we, when, when we look at what has happened over the, the past year, year and a half. It's, it's sometimes um, compelling to compare it to the time back in the, the, the late 60s, early 70s, compare it to 1989, compare it to, to 9-11, to one of these pivotal moments where the world actually sort of fundamentally changed. I don't think we yet know how COVID, the COVID pandemic will change the world in, in the long run, but it feels like we are in a moment of change. From your perspective, let's, let's imagine that you were in your early 20s now studying theology back in Aarhus. What would be your project? What would you actually engage in? What, how would you interpret your faith and your responsibility to change the world if you were not boomers as you are, you're wonderful boomers, but what would you do? Well, I think I would, um, I would do some of the same uh, things I have been doing. I would I would go deeper into the theology of uh, ecumenics and uh, diaconics. I would uh, maybe not uh, leave it so quickly to serve solely the church. I have been happy to, to serve the church in my, but maybe some more years to, uh, 
to go deeper into some subjects and then i would um, i would try i think i would try to uh, establish a, a program or a project trying to investigate uh, at, at denmark uh, and what has happened in denmark from from an outside if you can do that outside review so to say regard denmark as as a place who needs some humanitarian assistance who needs uh, uh, to be uh, uh, to be assisted to find its way and what would i do to help my own country to get away from this uh, even more and more narrow understanding of our purpose in the world i i've been born in in 1946 I have lived in Europe in a time with no wars in our part of the world. And this is historic sensation. And now we see that new nationalistic movements also in Denmark are cutting the ties to the international community, are, are, are regarding UN, for instance, as an enemy almost when they criticize us for what we do to the children from Al-Hol in Syria. And I think that in, in that way, I would, I would try to, um, to change some, maybe going into the work of the Ecumenical Council or, or, or something like that, in order to, to change our situation or to bring some, some, some knowledge to the Danish people about what is happening because I'm afraid that uh, that my grandchildren maybe not will live in a Europe without wars. I think, um, first of all, I would like to influence uh, people and agencies working in the field of humanitarian and development work to insist on their core business. That means try to get people back to understand that we need to be need-driven. We need to address the issues of the most vulnerable, the most uh, poor people and so on. Today I see government and many NGOs, they are driven by an internal political agenda. And you can just uh, map where funding is going. It's basically today going to what is of political interest. One of the most difficult parts in the world is Yemen, and they cannot get their funding to just to have people to survive in Yemen. So as much as we have a language of uh, leave no one behind or localization and so on, we need agencies and people to understand we are basically here driven to assist the most needy and the most vulnerable. And that is going to be even more important after uh, COVID-19. We are driven by a very narrow political agenda and what it is that we will have on uh, our news and uh, our television news every evening. And that's, that's very depressing to see that there is such a narrow interest in what we are doing and not doing what is needed in the world where we have 
so many issues which is totally forgotten. We have better access to understand what is happening all over the world, but we do not understand exactly what is happening uh, in countries like Yemen or in some countries in Africa where we have no uh, news or we don't have an embassy and we have no political interest. I can just quote by someone who told me when I was based in Africa and that that's a privilege that I have been living most of my development career in Africa. When there was an emergency with people dying on a daily basis, I said, why are you not starting fundraising? He said, Christian, forget about that. We cannot do anything before there is an interest in Denmark. So the interest was what is interested for the Danes and not what is the need in, in the context in a specific country in Africa. This is actually what I would like to try to <laughs> convince people and agencies. We need to come, go back to the more basic understanding that we are here to assist people in, in, in need and not just our own internal uh, agenda. I think this is very interesting because uh, I, I agree totally. It's very interesting that, so to say, we have the same points, but you have it clearly from your international perspective, and I have it from my experience in Denmark. But but when you dig down to the bottom of it, I think it's the same source. And I can just add on to what you are saying, Carsten. As I said in the beginning, I have very much been influenced and driven by church leaders in Africa, in South Africa, Desmond Tutu. I think one important aspect, he was again and again telling us, we are prisoners of hope. Prisoners of hope, that means we are here to demonstrate there is a future, there is a hope. If people have that kind of purpose-driven understanding to see an opportunity and hope and a future, that makes a difference. And that has at least for me been my uh, fully understanding wherever I have been, whether it's Somalia or in other these crisis countries, there's always a hope if you're willing to listen to the people, to see what's actually done by people themselves and not what is done by agencies. Forget about the agencies. Most people in these countries, they definitely survive because they can organize themselves because they are extremely well in organizing local communities. And then later on, we can come and assist. And that my concern that there is so little understanding on the capacities in these vulnerable communities. People do think that we are the one to find a solution to all humanitarian crises. No, actually people are the best themselves. And then we can add on but that understanding is uh, totally disappearing from uh, yeah, the overall understanding what humanitarian development work is all about today. I think that's, that's very true. I think it is very true that uh, somehow having a hope also means that you get the strength to live with unsolved mysteries in your life. And... Um, as long as you, you try to, to do what you can do without ever thinking that now you have solved every problem. But I didn't effort, I tried to. Uh, then I, I think you can also still have the hope 
that um, everything does not depend on man or what you and I can do or have done. God sei Dank. Okay, boomers, you are you are two of my favorite boomers. Thank you so much for coming on True Humanitarian and giving such a fresh perspective on the humanitarian development work. And and thank you personally for for being an inspiration both of you in in my professional life. Thank you. Also, thank you. You are one of my favorite sons. Souls of men beyond what you see. Stages are different for each. Who will lead? Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks, fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets. Ask better questions, pick apart, educate, and no one is safe. We're here to build and debate. We are, we are searching for more. Open up your mind beyond rich or poor. For the truth, you've been warned. Humanitarian. <laughs>